Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. As always, if you have any feedback on the show or questions for previous and current guests, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. My guest today is Ernesto Talvi. He is a non-resident senior fellow in global economy and development here at Brookings and is academic director of CERES, the Center for the Study of Economic and Social Affairs in Montevideo, Uruguay. These two roles come together here at Brookings, where he also directs the Brookings Global Series Economic and Social Policy in Latin America Initiative. He's also served at the Inter-American Development Bank, the Ministry of Finance in Uruguay, and also at the Central Bank of Uruguay, where he was the chief economist. And finally, Ernesto is a visiting professor at Columbia University in New York. Welcome to the show, Ernesto. Thank you very much for inviting me on, Fred. And you must travel a lot. I looked it up. Uh, we are here in Washington, D.C., about 5,200 miles from Montevideo. That's about the distance from here to Athens, Greece. Well, uh, and flights have a, a stop in Miami, so that makes the travel a little bit longer. Uh, but we, we manage. We, we, we got used to it. Well, I'm very glad you're on the program now. Uh, back in the spring, I hosted Harold Trancunas, who is the director of uh, another branch of research on Latin America here at Brookings. Um, I said in the, in the introduction that you direct a project here. We call it ESPLA, the Economic and Social Policy in Latin America Initiative. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. Uh, ESPLA is a uh, partnership between the Global Economy and Development Program at Brookings and uh, CERIS, a think tank, uh, a highly respected think tank in, in, in Uruguay. Um, and the idea is to join forces uh, between um, Brookings' uh, reputation, um, Brookings' scholarly debt, Brookings' uh, uh, convening power, and CERIS' network and, and very intimate knowledge of the region uh, to become a very active in the in the public policy debate in Latin America and everywhere else Latin America matters a lot from Washington DC New York Miami to Madrid and Beijing and the point of view of our work and our research is uh, the point of view of the key challenges for, Latin American countries, from macroeconomic management to development and well-being to trade integration. Now, I like the way you put that. Everywhere Latin America matters, because it's not just about Latin America as the uh, as the continent, as the countries in it. And we'll get back to that in a minute. Now, as we said, uh, Ceres is in Montevideo, and you're from Uruguay originally, are you not? I'm from Uruguay, and, and very proudly so. Well, you have a lot to be proud of. I, I looked it up. The U.S. State Department has some fact sheets. Uruguay is, in South America, first in democracy, first in the size of its middle class as a percent of its population, first in lack of corruption, first in quality of living in the capital, uh, first in terms of prosperity, security, press freedom, peace, and uh, also, very interestingly, first in terms of troop contribution to UN peacekeeping operations as a percentage of the population, and it's second and third in South America and a lot of other uh, really nice things to be second and third in. And also, The Economist magazine named Uruguay as its country of the year last year, uh, citing both its legalization of gay marriage and being the first country to legalize and regulate uh, marijuana, and I'm sure for a host of other things. What is Uruguay doing right that other nations around the world should do as well? 
Well, I think, uh, and this is an impressive list to hear it all together, uh, Uruguay is being true to itself and its uh, traditions of tolerance and dialogue. Um, it's being a good neighbor of the international community. It's uh, nurturing um, a strong and functioning democracy uh, with uh, vibrant opposition parties, free press, independent judiciary, and also very vibrant civil society. It is um, at the avant-garde of, of, of a social rights agenda. Let, let us not forget uh, that a century ago, at the beginning of the 20th century, actually Uruguay constructed one of the first and most modern welfare states in the world. So it is a country that has small but deeply felt traditions. And the fact that, that a former guerrilla is now the president of our country and a convert to liberal democracy is a testimony to the strength of Uruguayan institutions. That that's fascinating. It's one of the things I love about doing these podcasts. Is I just I learn about uh, some very interesting things. Um, and from Uruguay, you went to graduate school in Chicago. Now, as far as I understand, Uruguay it's in the southern hemisphere, but it has a fairly temperate climate. But Chicago doesn't. How <laughs> how did you pick Chicago, and and what did you think of your first winter there? And uh, let me tell you, Fred, that I didn't pick Chicago because of the climate. I mean, uh, my first winter there. Uh, was hard, uh, especially after discovering by first-hand experience about the wind chill factor, uh, which Chicagoans know a lot about. Uh, but let me tell you that the spring quarter, my first spring quarter was even harder because the program at the University of Chicago was so demanding that I really, there was a point in the quarter that I, I thought I, I, I was not going to make it. But fortunately, I, I was wrong about that. The, the the key reason I, I picked Chicago because Chicago is a, it's a beautiful combination between rigorous methodology and thinking out of the box between what I call mathematical and statistical methods and poetry. I mean, let us think about Gary Baker, uh, the Nobel laureate that unfortunately we lost uh, this year. Uh, he expanded the scope of economics, applying its methodology to every aspect of the human adventure, to social, political, and even our psychological life. So at Chicago, nothing is taken for granted. There are no such things as revealed truths, only a, a perpetual pursuit of knowledge. That's what's, what makes it a, a great university. So let's return our attention now to Latin America. Here in the United States, we often think in terms of, if we think at all about these things in terms of regions and continents, not necessarily countries like Africa and Asia uh, and, and even Latin America. Can you break down what we're talking about in terms of Latin America, number of countries, total population, languages spoken, those sorts of things? Let me, let me answer this with a quote from Peruvian uh, writer Mario Vargallosa, who was the Nobel Laureate for Literature in 2010, he says something to this effect that the imprint of Europeans, indigenous cultures, Afro-descendant culture has blended for the last five, 
hundred years in Latin America and uh, has been reflected in our human types, in our languages, in our music, in our foods, in our religion. To the extent that he says something that I think is beautiful. Latin America actually lacks an identity because it has them all. So Latin America is uh, many, many things, but sometimes it, it's useful in many dimensions to think about the region as a single one. All right. Well, that's, uh, that gets us into our next topic of conversation, which is your new report on Latin America, uh, specifically Latin America's macroeconomic outlook. And even in the title, you, you call it Latin America's economic outlook, but then you posit there that there are uh, perhaps three regions of Latin America. So what are the three Latin Americas that you focus on in this report? Well, uh, the three Latin Americas have to do with the fact that from the macroeconomic performance and vulnerabilities, that meaning uh, fiscal, monetary, and exchange rate policy, the inflation outlook, the financial uh, strength, uh, there are actually three Latin Americas with very different sets of vulnerabilities and policy challenges. One uh, composed by Chile, and I'm talking about the major countries here, Chile, Peru, Colombia, and, uh, and Mexico, uh, with very strong fundamentals. Another set of countries composed by Argentina and Venezuela with very weak macroeconomic fundamentals. And an intermediate case, Brazil, which is closer to the countries with strong fundamentals, but with some challenges, especially on the fiscal front, that uh, Brazil will have to tr to address in a, in a timely fashion to avoid losing um, the credit standing that it now has in international financial markets. So taken together, these are seven countries throughout Latin America. How representative are they of the overall uh, economic output of the entire region? They are very representative in size. They are 93% of the total output of the region, but also these three clusters of countries somehow all the others can be uh, can identify themselves with some of these uh, three typical clusters that you can find among the, the largest countries in the region. And I, I read your report and you find that, uh, or you observe that economic growth across all of Latin America has been slowing down, whereas before the, uh, the collapse of Lehman Bank in 2008, it was really rapid. Uh, how do you explain the uh, overall economic slowdown? And has it been uneven across the region? Actually, the Lehman created a very short interruption. We had a string of uninterrupted growth uh, from 2004 to, through 2011, and uh, substantially above average, double our historical average. And this was due to the fact that we had supersonic growth rates in China, exponential growth in, in the commodity prices that Latin America both produces and exports. Uh, they quadrupled during this period. And a continuous decline in international financing costs and the costs of uh, capital for productive investments. Um, all those 
uh, key external drivers uh, helped the region have a fantastic uh, period of growth between 2004 and 2011, but all these things came to a halt in mid-2011. Um, and and unfortunately, now we're pointing in the opposite direction. And that's, I think, uh, one of the key explanations of why the region, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the countries, have uh, slowed down very significantly. So what happened in mid-2011? Mid-2011, we had uh, the generalization of the European crisis to Spain and Italy, before it was supposed to be limited to the smaller countries, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, and therefore uh, uh, problems could be handled. Uh, when the larger countries were affected, then um, things got a little bit messy. And the other aspect is that as a result of that, China uh, is also slowing down significantly. And we envisage that the slowdown in China is going to continue because the investment-led, credit-propelled model of growth growth that substituted the export-driven model of growth pre-Lehman crisis uh, is not sustainable, simply because uh, the other side of the coin of this um, investment-driven, credit-propelled growth are really uh, bad, uh, relatively uh, poor infrastructure projects, um, overinvestment in, in, in real estate and therefore um, creating a problem for the health of the banking system. At, at the top of the podcast, you, you said uh, that uh, series, your think tank in Montevideo, looks at everywhere that Latin America matters. And already in this conversation, you've mentioned China, you've mentioned the European Union, you've mentioned Spain. I've read that um, the United States uh, monetary policy with regard to quantitative easing has had some impact uh, on economic growth in Latin America. So it's really you know, Latin America operating in a global context. That's the only way to understand Latin America, Fred. I mean, uh, uh, first and foremost, you, you need, we need to understand that we are relatively small. I mean, Latin America together, even including Brazil, it's 5 6% of world output. So we are like an island uh, in a huge sea, and whatever happens is going to affect us. Um, now, that's, that doesn't mean that external factors only matter. They matter a lot for our business cycle fluctuations, but uh, concerning um, uh, development, quality of life, and everything that has to do with human dignity, then uh, domestic policies much at, matter much more than these external factors. In terms of quality of life, then, I've also read that inequality, the gap between the richest and the poor in a society, tends to be the largest in uh, Latin America. Is, is that true? And how are some of these macroeconomic factors driving that? And what are the implications for social order? Uh, it is true. We are the most unequal region in the world. This is a... Uh, a problem that, that we've had for a long time. It's not something new. And you can trace it back to the fact that the distribution of educational achievement is very, very unevenly distributed among the high-income versus low-income groups of society. And educational achievement is the, the best predictor 
for uh, your income and therefore for income differentials. Um, inequality is a problem in that it breeds many social ills. It breeds uh, populism, understood as opportunistic redistribution. Uh, it breeds social exclusion. It breeds informality, and it breeds crime. If I'm not able to share in the society's prosperity uh, through a formal job, then uh, I might be tempted to, to do it through illicit means. So I think inequality, huge inequalities, are inconsistent with a stable social order and, and, and institutional order. Now, these, these trends are not evenly distributed throughout the region, I, I understand. Uh, some countries are probably doing better and some are doing worse or some are doing less bad than others. For example, um, Argentina and Venezuela, you put them in the uh, weak fundamentals group. Uh, what kind of specific things are happening in those countries that, uh, that worry you? Both countries have abandoned liberal democracy. Argentina in favor of state capitalism, Venezuela in favor of authoritarian 21st century socialism. Hand in hand with the abandonment of liberal democracy came the abandonment of mainstream economic policies uh, as the ones that are being pursued by Brazil, Chile, Peru, Mexico, Colombia, Uruguay. And, and the results are out there for all of us to see. Inflation is really high in those countries, isn't it? High inflation, large deficits, contracting economies, uh, social unrest, and, and really um, all the symptoms of uh, societies that are, in a sense, disintegrating into, into something that is the complete opposite of progress. Let's talk about Mexico. Is Mexico different? Uh, where does Mexico stand in this group? Mexico is very different from especially from South American countries, because it is so tightly connected to the U.S., Fred. I mean, 80% of, of Mexican exports uh, come into the U.S. Um, more than 60% of Mexico's foreign direct investment comes into the country from the U.S. 98% of workers' remittances of uh, Mexican workers uh, that are working abroad 98% of their remittances come from Mexican workers working in, in the U.S. So whatever happens in the U.S., for good or for evil, has a tremendous impact in Mexico in ways that it will not have in South American countries. Now, the paper uh, that we're talking about, Latin America Macroeconomic Outlook, A Global Perspective, and I'll have that linked to from the show notes on our website, uh, it's actually an economic forecast Model. So you're looking ahead to uh, what might happen to Latin American growth, especially for the, the seven countries that you focus on. What are some of the, um, the projections that you make, and what are some of the assumptions that you have to make about world events to, to make those projections? Well, the assumption that we did about world events, uh, Fred, are that extreme events are, are precluded or excluded from the analysis. We call extreme events uh, a sharp and unexpected rise in U.S. interest rate, uh, maybe uh, a disintegration of the euro, 
collapse of the property market in and the financial crisis in China, geopolitical tensions disrupting trade and investment flows. We are actually excluding that those possibilities, not because they could not happen, simply because markets today are assigning uh, to those events a low probability of occurring. That doesn't mean they cannot occur. So under normal circumstances and under a less favorable and complacent global environment than we had between 2004 and 2011, the region is expected to grow on average at around 3 3.5% a year, which is a pretty lackluster growth rate and would put us at a very long distance uh, from becoming high-income developed countries in the foreseeable future. And would uh, Chile, Mexico, Peru, and Colombia perhaps grow a little bit faster than that? Yeah, the, 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 the countries that we expect are going to be growing the fastest are uh, Peru, Colombia, uh, Chile. Uh, but the only country that really is within reach in the next two generations of becoming uh, a country with the levels of income of today's rich countries is Chile. Chile has been doing the right things for the last 25 years. In the paper, and I also heard you say this at a recent event, you quoted Milton Friedman that uh, in bad times, he said, the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. What does that mean to you? Well, Fred, it means exactly what it says. Uh, uh, when when things are, are, are going well, perhaps because you are having uh, favorable tailwinds from the from the external environment and you are growing at very uh, high rates, you have very low incentives as a government to pursue politically complex reforms because you're doing well anyway without them. So it is really in mediocre times that there is a, a social demand for, for actual change and therefore the incentives are stronger were to, to promote complex changes when times are not as good. Um, and, and, and that's why I'm optimistic about the region, uh, paradoxically, because uh, uh, the external environment is not expected to be as favorable, and therefore we are not going to be able to depend on favorable uh, external tailwinds, tailwinds, and we will have to start to depend on favorable domestic tailwinds by doing the right things, as Chile did for many years. Well, I hope this report gets wide distribution uh, in all the uh, capitals and finance ministries and central banks of all the Latin American countries, because it's really interesting and important work that, that you've done here. Um, so speaking of what, what else is on your research agenda, uh, wearing any one of your many hats or all of them? Our research agenda, uh, uh, Fred, is informed by what we think, um, honestly, are the key challenges for Latin America in the years to come. And I think they are mainly three. One, to preserve where it was achieved, macroeconomic and financial stability. This is key. Instability always hurts the most vulnerable uh, segments of society. Second, we need urgently to improve the quality of our education, of our educational systems in order to make high-quality education affordable and available to all. 
This is not the case right now in Latin America. And third, I think that we need to recreate, and this involves the U.S. and Canada too, the spirit of the 1994 Summit of the Americas when President Bill Clinton and his Latin American counterparts met for the, for, for the summit in Miami and launched the idea of the free trade areas of the Americas, a grand vision of a shared future. I think that we need that and that we could rekindle that uh, grand vision through what I like to call a new trans-American partnership modeled in the image of the current Trans-Pacific Partnership that the U.S. is negotiating mainly with Asian partners and the Trans-Atlantic Trade and Investment Partnership that the U.S. is negotiating with um, Europe. Why not a new Trans-American Partnership? Uh, the U.S. and Canada have already a host of free trade agreements with 11 Latin American countries. But, but a trans-American partnership that recreates that spirit of 1994 and that has Latin America at the front and at the center. Well, that's, that's terrific. And I'm glad that we finished on that because my most recent podcast guest before this was with uh, former U.S. Deputy Trade Rep Miriam Sapiro, who's yeah. talking about um, the importance of free trade. And also, on uh, I'll put in the show notes, uh, I see that you had written uh, an opinion about uh, this topic, a new Trans-America partnership. Exactly. Um, well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Ernesto. I really appreciate your, your time, and, and I'm glad I had a chance to meet you uh, while you're here in Washington, D.C. It was fascinating for me too, Fred, and, and I'm very glad that, that, that I was here in the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. To learn more about Ernesto and his work on Latin America, please visit brookings.edu slash ESPLA. That's E-S-P-L-A. And if you have any questions for Ernesto Talvi or any guests of the podcast, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. And now, our regular segment with Governance Studies Fellow John Hudak, who describes a blog series on issues in the upcoming midterm elections, including analysis of nine of the most competitive Senate races. This week on Brookings FixGov blog, we've been preparing for the midterm elections. As election day bears down, we've started a two-week-long series that features uh, two dozen posts tackling a variety of issues surrounding the midterm elections. We also asked experts from nine of the most competitive Senate race states to tell us a little bit about the states and the races that are occurring there for the U.S. Senate this year. It's these nine states that will determine what the outcome of the midterm elections is and which party controls the United States Senate at the end of the day. We have posts from across Brookings and even outside of Brookings that look at the role of transparency in money and politics, at climate change, at marijuana legalization, at how foreign policy is affecting the midterm elections. We also have a series of posts that look at how specific demographic groups are going to be engaged or not engaged in this year's midterms. We asked scholars to answer six basic questions that help readers and voters understand what's happening a little bit more clearly than the mainstream media is allowing. We encourage you to tune in to the Brookings FixGov blog and read all of these posts and engage us on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, and in the comments section of each of these posts.
You can visit FixGov on our website at brookings.edu FixGov. Coming up on November 5th, a special edition of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast featuring experts Tom Mann, Sarah Bender, and Bill Galston discussing the midterm election results. This podcast is made possible with Zach Colzer's tremendous editing and production skills, Jessica Pavone's talented artwork, and the terrific web support offered by Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abelahian. Our intern is Charmaine Crutchfield. If you have any feedback for guests of the show or any input at all, send your emails to bcp at brookings.edu. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and now listen to us on Stitcher. Links to everything discussed in the podcast are on the show's webpage on brookings.edu slash bcp.